Hi, my name is Lloyd Sarbutz, and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this episode, the microphone is passed on to Liberia bookseller Bui Tamello, who has invited debut author Santanu Batachiara to chat about his recent novel, One Small Voice, which was published by Fig Tree. I hope you enjoy it. Shantanu Bhattacharya is the author of One Small Voice, published by Penguin Fig Tree, an Observer Best Debut Novel for 2023. He grew up in India and studied at the University of Oxford and the National University of Singapore. Shantanu is the winner of the 2021 Most Charan Prize, the Life Writing Prize and a London Writers Award. His works have been nominated for the Forthright Prize, Blue Pencil Agency First Novel Award and the Pontas slash JJ Boiler Emerging Writers Prize. His short fiction have, been, have appeared in the Commonwealth Writers, Ada and Token magazines. He's a graduate of the Tin House Writers Workshop and currently lives in London. Thank you for joining us, Shantanu. Thank you, Bui. I firstly would like for you to read an excerpt from your book of Absolutely. your choosing. So <coughs> I'm reading from uh, somewhere in the middle of the book. And this is, uh, this is a scene where the protagonist, Shubhankar Shabi, he is with his parents. What are you drawing? Papa now asks. Nothing, just... He replies, then adds, The psychologist has asked me to draw whatever comes to mind. Ma grunts as she enters from the balcony, the water can dripping, leaving spots on the mosaic floor as she walks across the room. She mutters under her breath, I don't know what Bhagwaki does with the psychologist, and here I am, sitting all day, and he won't say a word to me. Ma doesn't like the idea of him, her son, being in therapy. Papa turns away. He never asks about the therapy. He avoids asking about things he doesn't understand, lest he not know what to say in response. He finally says, Beta, I think it's time to apply for an MBA. You can get in anywhere. Harvard, Stanford, Yale. Papa has said this before, wanting him to get on with his life. According to Papa, his recovery is complete. He is back at his job. His body is coming together. The limp only slight these days. You should think about advancing your career. He looks back to his nascent sketch, doesn't say anything. Papa lets out a laugh to lighten the mood. These American colleges, they have funny names, no? Kellogg, like the cornflakes. Ma giggles at the silly joke. He smiles too. This is what his parents' courtship would have looked like if they hadn't had an arranged marriage without ever meeting. They'd only seen one another in photographs, a single one of each, black and white, High resolution, clicked in a local studio, the flashlight strong to make their brown skin tones lighter. These two photos are in their wedding album, on the first page, prelude to the story of their union. Papa trying to look smart, head held straight, chin pointing towards the camera, Ma shy and demure, looking down, nothing like how they are in real life. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we are nearly a week since pub day. How are you feeling? That's a, a broad question, but <laughs> about the book existing, about it's it's officially not yours. It's officially been not yours for a long time, but how are you feeling? 
Um, I think I'm still kind of coming off the high of uh, publication day, um, which was, yeah, like you said, last Thursday, so five, six days ago now. Um, and it was kind of one of the, I would say, one of the greatest nights of my life. Um, there were a lot of um, friends and supporters of my writing, my mentors, my entire publishing team at Penguin, my agent. Everyone showed up and you know everyone was there to celebrate me and my writing. And, um, and because this was the first time that this was happening, it was doubly special. Mm. Um, so I'm feeling very, very good. <laughs> and I've also been seeing on Instagram and for myself in person as well, the book on shelves in, book in bookshops. Um, and that's a great feeling. And in a way, it's strange because because it, th there's this there's this feeling of it being separated from you now. It has gone out into the world and and it doesn't I, I, the, I can't stake as much claim to it as I could even a week ago. And <laughs> I still have to kind of wrap my head around that. Um, but no, overall it's it's a good feeling for sure. That's yeah. amazing. Um, something that kind of, stuck to me as um as i was listening to you read is i became curious why you chose that chapter obviously different people will be asking you like why um, to read excerpts of the book but that one i remember kind of slowing me down um because it's quite um near the start of the book it, it slowed me in my tracks it's one of the ones that left me curious but uh speaking as brown people the idea of therapy is not really a popular one. Absolutely. Is that any, is that, was that any of the sort of pulling power behind why you chose that particular verse, <laughs> let's say? <laughs> um, I actually really like this chapter. Um, and then it took me some time to write this. Um, it came in one of the much later drafts. It didn't exist there from the start. Um, and I like the fact that it's such a simple scene of him, of Shubhankar and his parents you know, hanging out, really. Um, his mother, you know, if we get to get into the story, his mother now lives with him because something has happened, as we know. There's a limp and there's, there was an injury, so there has been an incident in his life. Mm -hmm. um, his mother lives with him because she's taking care of him. And his father's visiting from their, from their hometown, Lucknow, mm -hmm. and they're in Mumbai. Um, and it's just three family members doing their own thing. The dad's reading the newspaper, the mom's you know, in the balcony watering the plants. And they're trying to, I guess, find out what's going on with him. They're trying to, they're struggling to understand why he's not bouncing back to, I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> normal. Um, and they don't understand, you know, the, the, the fact that his body might be recovering from the incident, but his mind is taking longer and he's in therapy and he's seeing somebody and they just don't understand that concept. Mm -hmm. But they're skirting around the issue. They're not really talking about it. His mom's a bit more direct than his dad is. Uh, I really like the dynamic of the three of them there. And then the dad, to kind of cut through the awkwardness, just kind of resorts to all these silly jokes. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I really like this chapter. It's, it's very appreciated and I feel like I was visualizing this family. Um, I'm gonna tr I'm gonna try my hardest to do no spoilers, but the the other scenes when they're uh, extra family members in the space, how they keep true to themselves, but there's still this element of like roles and 
a place in the world. How do you want people to interact with Shabby's story and his perspectives, which, you know, because he's not the most loud of people, I would say. I know it's a book, but... No, he's 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 not, not he's not. And uh, I really struggled with it because to have a protagonist who isn't kind of the most... um, vociferous who hasn't uh, you know hasn't got the strongest opinions in the room um it's difficult to to write a protagonist and for the first few drafts people kept telling me you know we get everyone but we're not getting him mm. and i tried to put words in his mouth and i tried to make him do things but then they'd read those drafts and they'd say you know this doesn't th- this is not him that. this is not <laughs> Yeah, this is not genuine. This is not him. He wouldn't ever say this or yeah. he wouldn't ever act out like this. He, yeah. He's more reserved than this, isn't he? Um, and so I really kind of came to accept him as somebody who is who's more of an observer and more of a witness to what's happening around him than somebody who is playing a proactive role in the goings-on. Um, and I think that's what I... you know, it, it, For any reader kind of trying to get find their way into this story i just say kind of like just walk with shabby mm. because he's observing and for a long time in the novel he is himself is trying to make up his mind on where he stands on things and for me that was the charm of the protagonist really because i think most of us are like that in mm. real life you know there's a lot happening around us we and especially in today's times you know you wake up and there are all these kind of notifications on your phone the latest news, something has happened, um, earthquakes, mm-hmm. elections, um, riots, whatever. Um, and then you have like you messages from your friends and you have your social media feed. And there's just a lot that we're responding mm-hmm. to all the time. And we don't kind of always know where we stand on things. So for the most part of our lives, we're actually just observing and witnessing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I wanted him to be like. And, um, and you know, I, when, when I made my piece with that and when I told myself that you know he's not he doesn't need to be the hero because he is the observer and um, in Indian storytelling there's this word called Sutradhar uh, which uh, can be translated to the carrier of the thread and so this is the person who doesn't always feature in the story themselves uh, but they're carrying the thread of the story without them there is no story even though they're not actively always participating. They're letting the others kind of voice their opinions and, you know, do their thing. But they are the ones, like, you you, you, you snap the thread and there is no story. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I, I thought of Shabi as the sutra, that there is no story without him. He's carrying the weight of the entire novel on his shoulders, but he doesn't always have to be an active participant in, in things. That's such a wonderful way to put it. And um, I'm definitely going to ask you for that word again, <laughs> because... Even when I was reading the way that the the book is written, it's like I, I kept having to like engineer my brain to be like, he is like I, there was a, because it doesn't feel like narrator is the correct translation of this word in in a lot of ways because the narrator does hold the story, and the novel is being narrated, but it is in this way that feels like our protagonist is is next to us. Yeah, um, it's a very what. You know, I, I learned it in one of the creative writing workshops, a closed third. But even then, I don't think it's a closed third because a closed third is almost a narrator who's sitting on the, let's say, the shoulder yeah. of the protagonist. Whereas in this case, we're actually in his head. But in his, yes. But in I his agree. head. 
but it's not first person. And to me, it was that that was the challenge that I didn't want to make it first person because a lot of times he doesn't quite know where he stands on things. Yeah. For almost, I think, a third of the story, he's a child. Yeah. Um, and I can't do... Can I, it's too much pressure to put a first person narrative on a child mm. to get them to tell us what exactly they're feeling. Um, and so I tried first person. It wasn't really working. And then I said... Let me just try this kind of this technique where we're in his head, but it's still almost like him telling the story as an outsider to himself. Mm-hmm. So I went with the third person, but we're very, very, very close to him. It's yeah, it's it's almost like a, a third space within the third person of it all. Um, what called for one small voice to be written? I read uh, on your Instagram and in a few different versions of your bio that. This is a story that started almost ten years ago. Yeah. What is this? I, I'm as as a writer, as a as a fan, as a reader. Uh, I'm interested in in what called for this story to be pulled out. Um. Yeah. So ten years ago, I was living and working in Mumbai, um, and I felt like. There were a few different things that I felt like my generation of, let's say, urban millennial Indians were grappling with. One was this idea of um, tradition versus modernity, because it seemed like we had moved into a space which was more global um, and in some ways westernized, um, which wasn't kind of sitting well with our parents' generation. And not just sitting well, but even if they did not disapprove of it, they just didn't understand it. They just didn't kind of, you know, half the things we do or we'd say, they just wouldn't, like, they couldn't get their heads around this. And I think that was an interesting dynamic. And we were constantly, you know, struggling with, sometimes we'd act out, sometimes we'd be angry with them, sometimes we'd think they're really foolish and backward, sometimes we'd try to bring them along this journey, you know, take them to ex- on experiences and so that was one big dynamic the other was our engagement with politics which growing up i feel like and this is true for every part <coughs> of the world i don't think we f- have found uh, a productive way to engage kids in school with the political events of the day and it's interesting because it's there all over them. You know, it's there kind of all around. It's there, and especially I think with technology, it's only you know you can't keep them away from what's happening. They know, they see, they observe, they hear. Adults talk about it, mm. but they never. We never deconstruct it for them. We never you know sit them down and say, so this was there in the newspaper today, and this is kind of the short history of it. This is why this has happened. What do you feel about it, right? We never have these discussions in school as well. And so in a way, I think all of us have grown up being in the middle of political events, but not really knowing how to engage. And so suddenly you're an adult and you have the freedom to start engaging, but you're quite inept because you don't know what to do with this, right? Um, No one's ever told you that in school. We've been taught history and geography and language and physics and whatever, but no one's ever told you what to make of politics around you Mm -hmm. Um, and that then leads to all sorts of weird and wonderful choices you know we sometimes we vote for the wrong people sometimes we 
take a stand on things that maybe don't reflect our value system. We're very susceptible to fake news um, because we don't know the full history of you know what's happened before us. Um, and that to me was very interesting. And I felt like there were all these kind of dilemmas that our generation was going through. <coughs> and I needed to be, I needed it for it to be captured and put in a story um, that could kind of showcase our state of mind, that could portray kind of the, 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 the struggles that we were going through in being a part of the world, but also really kind of what it meant for us in our personal lives and how does the personal and the political interact for our generation. So for me, that, that was one of the major drivers of the story. That, that came across in the, in the book and it's very situated, I'd say in India, um, obviously very clearly Lucknow and uh, Mumbai. But then there's also, as somebody who's never been to either of those places, and I'm sure like there'll be a significant number of your readers who wouldn't have been to those places, it feels like you're kind of warped into another space, but you're also called to look around at your own situations. Like I said, with the initial excerpt that you read about therapy, I know that I've had similar conversations with my parents around like, but why do you need that? You can just talk to us. Um, but then digging a little bit deeper with that conversation, um, growing up with family members and parents who lived through South African apartheid and how the similarity, I don't even want to say similarities because it's not even about drawing comparison to struggle, but I think there's, again, this thread, there's this, this, this being pulled in that yeah. happened to me where it's like some points I had to put the book down because I was like, this is so gentle and it, it, it's not a, it, this is not a harsh book. This is a, a book that's, that's holding you. But I think some of the things it was bringing up for me it made me want it, it it gave me a different perspective to approach the things my lineage and my background yeah. have been through yeah and i think one of the things that i kind of started to realize when i moved to the uk was the universality of emotions and you know we've been we've been brought up to think that our our situations are very unique and what we feel are very unique um and then there are other cultures where things are done differently. And things might be done differently. And every culture comes from its own place of history and geography and you know, they have their own practices. But I think human emotion at its very kind of like basic and rawest is the same. Mm. You know, a, a mother is a mother and your the pull you feel for your for your people and for your land is what it is and uh, you know what you feel for your sibling and friendships and attraction and love and all of these emotions are actually they kind of they might manifest themselves in different ways in different cultures but what the human feels inside is not different mm. from one culture to another and in a way I felt like maybe that's also why it was easier for me to write the book once I moved here because once it 
it, it unlocked something that realization the universe the universality of human emotion yeah. then unlocked something in me where i didn't feel tied to making this an indian book you know what you yeah. know what i mean because exactly. otherwise you know, i think there there was a lot of pressure because it's so steeped in india and it's kind of you know it's contemporary indian human condition mm-hmm. I, i think there was a lot of pressure to make it very representative and to talk about all of these things that only are happening in india and somehow i think moving out and this realization that actually emotions are universal and therefore um this book could be read by anyone that mm-hmm. kind of unlocked something in my writing uh and my ability to tell the story and just gave me more confidence in being able to uh, put it on the page that's beautiful and i think that's a that's hopefully a thought process that is going to continue with authors coming forward because it definitely doesn't feel like something that was thought about because the lens was very sort of centered in one way and anything else you had to be representing a larger group of people and it had to to have this deeper meaning beyond you know love and speaking up for yourself and <sighs> Okay. For the short story that you wrote, the nicer one, which I really enjoyed, by the way. Thank you. Um, you said that you had the first draft done in one sitting. Yeah, it was one afternoon. Tell us your secret. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's incomparable to to do a short story and a novel. It's, it's unrealistic to say you can write a novel in one sitting. But how your approach to writing is it you knew you were going there and you were like you saw something and you were like i'm going to finish this in one afternoon or you so sat down so that's a piece of life writing and that's actually taken from something that really happened mm-hmm. um so there was an incident um that kind of triggered that story mm-hmm. and i think it had happened on a thursday night um where i'd gone to this party and i kind of run into this old schoolmate um we were kind of we were back in the same school in back in india and now he's here as well um and that kind of triggered memories of things that had happened back then and i guess between kind of thursday and saturday i was really struggling with it um and i was trying to find a channel uh, and i was talking to my partner about it as well but was trying to find more of a creative channel to you know to take this out of my body really mm-hmm. um and so on sunday afternoon i just started writing is because i guess it was forming in my head and once i started writing i just didn't stop until it ended um but that's not the final version though because what came out was very very angry and bitter and um yeah just vituperative moved me but i <laughs> i i don't disagree with those things but i think i put it away for a year and a half so what you've read is a much more kind of was edited from a piece of from from a place of peace and calm okay. and that's true for one small voice as well a lot i think and this is you know i i'd say this to any writer of course depends on you know what what they want their work to be if it's an angry piece of work i guess it's great to be angry when you're editing it as well but i find it very useful to be in the throes of emotion 
when you are writing mm-hmm. the first draft so if it's love feel love you know if it's sex feel attraction uh if it is anger feel it you know just like feel it pulsing through your veins but then when you put it away and come back to it you almost need that distance because you need to become your reader you're not the writer anymore when you're editing you need to become your reader and therefore you can't throw yourself in the in the middle of that emotion anymore you need to have that distance and you need to have some level of calm to be able to look at your words and say this doesn't work mm-hmm. or this is just too raw let's give it a little polish or i'm just mm-hmm. repeating this thing over and over again and it's marring the reading experience or you know whatever it is so Perfect. yeah so i think the the that's the process that i use when i write i am and a lot of times like i'll write a chapter and i'll sit and cry for half an hour yeah because i'm so moved by by the characters and you know something that has happened in the chapter has just completely moved me but when i'm editing that doesn't happen when i'm editing i'm just like a lot distance. more surgical i'm like yeah. no this this word i need to find another word for this so i'm thinking in a lot more kind of technical way as an editor than okay. as the writer um at the at the start i i mentioned in your bio that you did all of this schooling and you won all of these prizes have you always seen yourself visualized yourself as a writer an artist a creator of some kind i think i knew deep down i just didn't know how to make it happen because i come from a family background where we kind of we did we had to grow up and get jobs there was no cushion to kind of experiment and lead the artist's life and um just kind of you know while time away i don't know i'm <laughs> writing i don't know what i'm writing i'm having a writer's block uh, my parents would be like go pay your bills It's really like go get a job <laughs> i love that um so that th- there was no cushion for that sort of thing so i i was always on that kind of uh, wagon of you know studying and getting a degree and finding a job and then doing a masters and finding another job and uh, very much part of that conveyor belt um and i just didn't know how i could step away and i was also you know i lived outside home i left home when i was 18 and i've lived in all these kind of big mega expensive cities where rent is super expensive and there was no option to ever call home and say i've run out of money send me money um so i guess i had to keep jobs and i had to kind of you know one, and once you start working you want that promotion you want that next step mm-hmm. you want that next job so i just didn't know how i could step away and make this happen um but i knew that i wanted to do something creatively i just didn't know how and when that would happen and it's taken a long time you know it's taken 10 years so that's a long time to stick with something um but i guess because i had that belief uh, and the novel really helped because i was so invested in this story that i you know there was something to hold on to there was something that anchored me i feel like if i wasn't invested enough in the story i i would have lost my bearings i wouldn't have been able to you know it would be it would have been very easy to just put this away and say okay let's try something else now let's mm-hmm. try something else now um but the novel really helped to kind of anchor my artistic ambitions and say there's the story i really want to tell and i will i will give it my everything mm-hmm. you know even if it means rewriting five times over which is true i have mm-hmm. rewritten this five times over but Damn the story it. in its kind of ethos is is still the same as what it was 10 years ago that's 
that's so enriching to hear. Um, I was watching a documentary on Toni Morrison's life recently and um, just seeing her speak about the time when she was working as an editor but still what uh, came out first was it Sula I think but writing Sula writing The Bluest Eye having two kids and yeah. a husband that's leaving you obviously yeah. that's not your situation but there's this this commonality that I'm finding yeah. is with writers and people who are like, this story is going to get out. Yeah. It it needs to leave my body. Yeah. And it needs to exist in yeah. the world. And, and you really need to believe in it. Um, because, I mean, life will happen, right? Like, life is not going to stand still. There are bills to pay. There are, you know, homes to be set up. There are dishes to be done, kids to be had. Listen. All of that is going to continue happening. It's you just need to, to say through all of that that this story will be written and shall be out one day and for it, people to read. And it must exist yeah. in this world. Like, even reading this, and there are these rules that we follow, these people that we're taught to hate. And I wouldn't say, like, for the majority of... It doesn't feel like there is hate in, in Shabby's heart, but, like, there's, there's people, it's like, these are the bad people. We don't, you know, mess around with them. We don't speak to them. They're bad because of this thing. Um, obviously, the caste system, as mentioned, that also puts this sort of hierarchy and then, like, uh, ticking off. This, in these ways, we're better. Yeah. Like, the, the way uh, engineers are brought up in the book as well, it, it just hits all of these points. This is a people who have been taught how to behave But who are, are creating their own this particular blueprint to be successful. Yeah. And whether it's from yourself or from people outside, how did you face that? How do you how did you deal with pushback from whichever way that it came whilst writing once more was? So I think I um well, so pushbacks can come from like you said, I mean from different quarters in different ways. Um, I always made sure that I was kind of financially above water, so I kept my jobs. You know, I found time to write outside of my, around my jobs, on the sidelines of my kind of mainstream life. So in a way, nobody could ever say you're on our money. You know, <laughs> I earned my money and I was writing. So in a way, I kind of I took care of it. Of course, it took a huge toll. Um, given a choice, I would take time out. I would go do creative writing. Actually, I don't know about kind of studying creative writing, but I would definitely take more time out. I think it takes a toll um, working a full-time job and trying to write, you know, waking up early in the morning, it takes a toll on your personal life, on your kind of relationship, friends, and all of that. Um, but I think there were pushbacks also in terms of, for a long time, I don't think anyone understood what was going on. The fact that, I mean, it, it was a hobby. And the fact that it wasn't a hobby for me, but everyone perceived it as a hobby, was very difficult for me to accept. And that little thing you do on the yeah, 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 yeah. What are you doing? Oh, I'm writing a book. Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> that is so great to hear. Yeah, 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 write books. Come on, this is the future. Go write books. Um, we should keep ourselves engaged, shouldn't we? <laughs> 
I'm like, yeah, fine. Sure. Um, I'm, a li- I'm a little more than engaged than I, you know, than I'd like to be at this point, but sure. Uh, but yeah, so I think I really struggled with people taking this seriously for a long time. And it's only when I started winning some of these prizes or getting shortlisted, longlisted, that is when I started seeing people, you know, that spark in their eyes. And like, okay, he wasn't kidding. He is actually writing and his work is worth something. Yeah. A lot of times, um, especially maybe in kind of our kind of communities, you need the world to say that this guy is worth something for your own to <laughs> to acknowledge that, okay, this guy's work is worth something. I'm raising my arms in admiration <laughs> and agreement, yes. Um, yeah, you need kind of, yeah, you need so much kind of approval from the rest of the world before your own can stand up and say that, okay, he wasn't kidding, he really means it and... You know, I guess he has some talent. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I guess, I guess. <laughs> yes, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Five years too late, but thank you. But, you know, whatever. I just found this whole chapter beautiful. I think that's why I marked it. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna read it all. Other communities have other rituals. Some stand in silence, head bowed. Some join hands and whisper prayers. Some sit in communion and some leave their dead to be devoured, devoured by vultures. Returning to nature, what belongs to nature but what of those who are never remembered forcefully forgotten like they'd never lived loved lusted laughed what if there's no name to remember them by no face just a little something left a whiff a crackle the eyes books are written to be to to be added to archive and the canon and things like that this like, I read that over and over and over again. And I know it has not exactly anything to do with my question, but, like, where where do you see it? Like, what is the, the it for this book? Like, you've been remembered. It's 50 years' time. You know, you're... I'm you're hopefully not around <laughs> anymore. <laughs> You're like, no. Nope. It seems, seems like a really long time. I mean, if you, you, if you haven't been hit by a climate ac- apocalypse at, by that time, <laughs> which has burned all the books down in a forest fire. Oh, yeah. I think the books will survive. I, I have hope. <laughs> I think a big driver for me to write this book was also to just memorialize our times. And when I say our times, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s India. And mm. India has... I mean, the entire world has changed so much, right, with this whole technology revolution. And a country like India, which is which was newly independent and was a very closed socialist economy for a long time and had its kind of economic liberalization and capitalism quite late in the 90s, so much has changed. And a lot of that is in this book, you know, malls and highways and consumerism mm-hmm. and, and technology and mobile phones. Um, but but for me that's what this book is also hopefully supposed to do for anyone reading this at a later period of time because the world and the country and society would have changed to a point where it's almost unrecognizable Um, you know already kind of my 
Uh, my grandparents aren't around anymore, but their world is not something that I can very easily imagine. Mm-hmm. What you know, the li- the few stories that I know from them, that's not a world I can like close my eyes and imagine how it was because it's changed so much, and I can already see my parents starting to feel that sort of dissonance with the current world as they're growing older. You know, they don't see a place for themselves mm-hmm. in this current world because again, things have changed so much. And I feel like that's the job of stories and books mm-hmm. that are set in certain periods of time in a certain place to memorialize that place and that time and what life was like, and what people did, what they ate, what they spoke, what their preoccupations were, how they interacted with each other. Right? It's to keep those stories alive. And I hope anyone reading this book in 50 years kind of gets that. You know, mm. gets gets that snapshot of a life that we led, um, that will definitely not be there fifty mm. years later. Yeah, I think even like reading some of the chapters from when Shabby was a kid, like you know that that world doesn't exist anymore. And yeah, because um, yeah, even in the book, because it spans thirty years, yeah, the world of the twenty tens is so different to the world of the nineteen eighties. Exactly, right? it's just completely different. Like in the nineteen eighties, there. They've applied for a phone line and they're waiting for <laughs> they're waiting for the phone to be installed for five years, you know. And his dad takes the bus to work, and then yeah. his dad buys a scooter, and then they buy a car, mm-hmm. and it, these like these little progressions that families have made, you know. Today, today somebody can just walk into well, not somebody, but like somebody of a certain um, affluence, let's mm-hmm. say, can walk in and buy a car. But for my parents' generation, no matter how educated they were, no matter how, um, you know, what their jobs were. Mm-hmm. You couldn't own a car before you were 40, 45. You couldn't yeah. think of own, owning a car. Like, people just didn't get paid that kind mm-hmm. of money, you know, even if you were in your best job. It is, it is based on uh, the like the incidents mentioned mm-hmm. are all true. Yeah. And I didn't want to shy away from that. A lot of uh, writers, you know, they... They write, especially I think writers from our parts of the world, um, just to kind of not get into trouble. They don't mention real cities, mm-hmm. real places, real political incidents, um, and they skirt around the realities. I was just very sure that I did not want to do that mm-hmm. um, because these things happened, and it was part of also just kind of paying tribute and remembering. That Precisely. you know that mosques were demolished and riots did happen and people did lose their lives and if I fictionalized that, then I would be doing disservice to everyone who lost their lives in like those incidents. Like whose side of history yeah. are you sort of ending up yeah. on? So the characters and the story and their journeys are all fictional, but I think the 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 the, the points, the main points that they go from you know point A, point B, point C, the tent poles of the story, they are all very real so Mm -hmm. it's not it's not fiction in that sense that it is set in a very true time and place i wonder if we're ever going to come to a point where these terms are sort of redundant in a way like to like not completely but in some way because there's a way that you know certain stories are written where you're like huh this you change a few things this could be someone's memoir yeah when i think of the point of a story or the point of engaging with a story is to hopefully learn something to to what I'm taking away from it and however 
fictionalize the characters maybe the situations the feelings the empathy the the mourning yeah. is felt it's yeah. real and that's not fiction yeah technically yeah so I it's that thing between fact and truth isn't it mm. so you know facts are things that did actually happen but truth can be different for different people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what you know my truth is could be different to somebody else's based on my history and what I've what's been passed down to me or how I feel being part of the world um and that's the that's where i think that's that's the um, uh area that's the space that fiction opens up mm-hmm. where you can have fact and truth coexist mm-hmm. because every character can have a voice and can voice their truth but they can all be going through the same facts mm-hmm. where three people could be going through the exact same incident and feeling very differently about Entirely. it um that's the that's the work of fiction i wanted to ask you about advocating and being advocated for are there are there still people in future stories or in the present day somehow where you're like this is who i'm advocating for this is whose voice i want to protect this is whose vision i want to hold i think um the people that we advocate for are the people whose voices or we should advocate for we we don't end up always doing it are people whose voices are completely absent mm-hmm. and you know this entire book and uh, this is now in you know it's there in the synopsis and the blurb and stuff so i think i can say it that he basically when he's 10 years old shabby he witnesses an act of mob violence where a man something horrible is done to a man and the man dies and the biggest absence in this book is the man himself mm-hmm. and he's trying to reclaim the memory of this man he's trying to find out more about this man and he's you know and this is also a time before the internet and before you know we could just you know go on facebook and find connections and things like that he's just unable to and he actually till the very end remains quite unable to to form a complete vision of this man who he was how his life was um you know what his family who were in his family and things like that so so i think while i think there's something telling about how absent that character is from the story but i'm hoping that you know that absence also strikes us as how the voiceless have been completely forgotten mm. and this entire novel is in service of of people like him mm-hmm. who are um victims of riots who are victims of state sponsored violence who are victims of you know the rich evicting the poor we don't know where the poor then go you know they kind of send to the outskirts of town or whatever or the rich kind of firing factory workers mm-hmm. now all these different ways in which we we feel comfortable to violate the rights of the most vulnerable without consequences this book is in a way a tribute to them because well 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 we like their voices are completely absent from this narrative because their voices are absent from our world you know and we never get to hear them and that's where i feel like 
that's where advocacy comes in and that's what or in a way almost every character is trying to do every character in this book is trying to find agency to fill that gap and to um to in a way make their journey to a point where they can do right by these people mm-hmm. and of course shabi's at the forefront of it because he's witnessed this thing happen and his entire life has been influenced and scarred and marred by that incident um and he's trying in so many different ways you know when he's when he's an adolescent he's trying in some ways when he's an adult he's trying in other ways but this book also talks about the consequences of trying to make a change and it's messy you know more mainstream popular fiction has the hero do something great and you know come out the winner and but in the real world there are consequences to trying to make mm-hmm. big changes and you know you 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 putting you putting yourself on the line and in the, sometimes it doesn't turn out very well and i think mm-hmm. that's also what i wanted to explore um in the book um i didn't want to create this dream story of somebody kind of you know changing the world and everything turns out hunky dory and the world is a better place mm-hmm. suddenly that process to even though it does end on a hopeful note mm-hmm. i have to say but i think that process to understand what your contribution can be is also what the story is all about because each of us can do right by others but only in a very specific way you know somebody is good at marching with a placard and raising slogans somebody is good at writing somebody's good at reporting this as a journalist somebody's good at something else maybe like making a song about it writing a poem about it mm-hmm. right um somebody's good at just giving money to people who need it at that point of time so i feel like we uh, we're also i think advocacy is a bit of a misleading term in the sense that we're also made to believe that there's only one way each of us can make a change mm-hmm. that each of us need to be very vocal and vociferous and angry and you know marching and screaming and sloganeering and you know that's 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 the idea you get when you think about advocacy but actually advocacy is is very different to each person and we need to find our individual way into it the other thing that i really kind of um, wanted to show in this book is that advocacy begins at home if you can't have uncomfortable conversations with your family members if you can't cross that threshold and that's actually the most difficult thing to do it's very easy to go out there and march and protest and come back home and keep your head down precisely when something wrong is happening so i think the most difficult thing to do is to cross that threshold within your home before you go out into the world and change things and you know the chapter that you mentioned with him and his mother that's exactly what happens they're able to address something that has been this kind of unspoken ghost in their mm-hmm. family for 25 years they're able to address that together and that then is what propels him into his future that gives him the confidence like you know for 25 years i've been trying to talk to my mom about something she, but now i know that she gets it mm-hmm. and she you know she's she's on my side mm-hmm. and i think that gives him the confidence to now go into the future and do something good hopefully my last and final question in your infinite library shantanu what is the first book that you pull out 
You have an infinite library. <laughs> well, if it's infinite, then I'm I'm pulling out a lot of books. <laughs> well, what's the first one? <laughs> I want to know what the first like the first one that catches your eye. What's the first one that? I think I mean there will be a lot of books and um, but what I what I will say is I probably pull out something in my mother tongue oh. in Bengali because you know part of this whole post-colonial English language education that we've had in India doesn't necessarily I mean in a way it has it distances us from our mother tongue and our languages and even if we like I speak fluent Bengali because we've always just spoken that at home like there's there's no other language of home and then in india because you know we we speak hindi um but also like if you're in a different part of the country you also get to start getting to learn the local language so we're quite multilingual like verbally i feel but i don't think i've done enough reading in my own language or in other indian languages and maybe if there's an infinite library then that's what i should start with um i've read the classics but i for example i i don't read a lot of contemporary bengali literature and maybe that's what that's where i should start um that also makes me so happy <laughs> thank you so much for joining me thanks so much boy it was such a pleasure to chat thank you for listening i wish to thank buri tamalo and santanu for such a warm discussion Visit our website, liberia.io, for news of future events and our current book recommendations.